Well, hey, welcome to Impact. If it's your first time, I am certainly grateful to have you here. If it's not your first time, I'm glad you keep coming back and we haven't screwed it up too bad. And you're willing to stop by again. My name is Travis. I'm the college and young adult ministry coordinator here. And we are in our second week of what is going to be about 40 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. So we are on week two. I guess we've got 38 or so more weeks. Um, if you were with us last week, then I tried to break that to you. Maybe it still hasn't sunk in. If it's your first time, maybe that sounds a little crazy to you that we would be spending 40 weeks or so in this text. Uh, but if you, like I do, have one of those Bibles that is very helpfully subdivided and there's the little paragraph indicators in bold at the top that talks about what each paragraph is about. If you were to just casually thumb through the Sermon on the Mount and just mark the number of topics addressed in there, in my Bible at least, it starts with the Beatitudes and then it includes salt and light, Christ coming to fulfill the law. Jesus is teaching on anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, laying up treasure in heaven, not being anxious, judging others, asking in prayer, the golden rule, being known by your fruit, the sheep and the goats discourse and building your house on the spiritual rock, which is Christ. And so even if at a cursory glance, we just addressed each of those little subdivisions that some of your Bibles have, we're looking at about 20 weeks there. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but Matthew didn't include those when he wrote the letter of Matthew. He wasn't like, ah, paragraph break. Here we go. Uh, He hadn't taken composition one with your HCC professor or anything like that. And so um, that wasn't there. And so I would venture to say that we do not even do justice to the text if we only hit the main bullet points. uh, As we're spending the next eight weeks in the Beatitudes, and that's one bullet point by those standards. Now... If you were with us last week, we we did bring up some of the prevailing theories about what the Sermon on the Mount is. And there is kind of a debate. If you have sat through a New Testament class in HCC or at USF or at whatever school you might go to, uh, there's kind of a predominant secular understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. And that views this text as kind of a Frankenstein's monster of things Jesus actually said and didn't say and may have said. And it's kind of just sewn together. And so then uh, scholars of that line of thinking, try to figure out where the foot got sewn on to the neck and the head and see this. Jesus didn't say this. He couldn't have. And they try to dissect the sermon. Uh, Truthfully, I don't think that Matthew presents this in, in a way that gives much credibility to that perspective. But within Christianity, there's a couple different understandings of what the sermon might be as well. And I think it's important that we understand what it is if we're going to spend like a year on it. And so there are people like John Stott, who's a brilliant man of faith, loved or loved the Lord. Uh, his faith is sight now because he passed away a couple years ago. But his perspective on the sermon was that it was not just one thing that Jesus said at one point, but rather it was kind of like the high school retreat with Jesus, only it was with the disciples and it wasn't at the beach. And so Jesus goes up onto the mount with his disciples and spends a week there teaching them. And this is the condensed version of what he taught them on the mountain. And then other people, and I would take this perspective, kind of view this as Jesus' magic bullet of a sermon. 
A couple weeks ago, I spoke in the main service here at Baylife, and I'm trying to learn the ins and outs of speaking at other places. And so the first thing I asked was, what do you want me to speak on when Mark approached me? And he said, you pick the, the best sermon you feel like you can do, the one you feel the most comfortable with. Pick your magic bullet that you feel is the most applicable to the most people. And so uh, I did the 23rd Psalm. I'm not saying it was good or it was bad, but it was the one that I knew the best and was the most comfortable with and felt like had the widest Range, And I think in many ways, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that for him. Because he lived in an era before podcasts and before YouTube videos and before Twitter and Tumblr. And he was a blessed man because of it. And, and so he would have to go from town to town and, and preach the same sermons because they only traveled by word of mouth or as far as his voice would carry. And so I would venture to say the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' magic bullet. And he would step into a new city and he would change it a little bit to fit the people in the city and meet their needs. But it was a consistent throughout his ministry teaching of these two chapters or so. Now, the, the thing... That is unanimously accepted, though, among Christians, is that the Sermon on the Mount represents the baseline. This is the core of Jesus' teaching. When Jesus taught, this is what he taught. And he taught a lot of other stuff around it, but the principles in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus was about in city to city to city. This is what he was known for, was teaching these things. Now, that might sound a little bit strange to you. I grew up in kind of in a culture of Christianity that a lot of my friends didn't go much further than not going to hell. That was kind of the depth of their walk with the Lord. And a lot of people start there and they journey much deeper in what it means to follow Jesus. But I've had some really great experiences working in the middle school ministry here at Baylife because you find a lot of kids coming in from outside of our church with that perspective. Uh, Not the kids who come through our children's ministry so much, but people whose parents are just checking out the church for the first time. And I actually led a middle school small group, and if you were to ask the middle schoolers, why did Jesus die on the cross, they would say, because he had to. Okay, that's a good one. That's a good starting point. Uh, why did Jesus die on the cross? So we don't go to hell. Okay, we're, that's true. Why did Jesus die on the cross? So we go to heaven. I guess that's just kind of like the opposite of the last thing you said. Why did Jesus go on, why did Jesus go on the cross? Like it's a ride. No. Why did Jesus... <laughs> Why did Jesus die on the cross Uh, to save us from our sins because he loved us? But it's really just restatements of, of the same general principle that it's a deliverance from judgment. That's what the cross is. And that's absolutely true. Jesus says, for this purpose, have I come to seek and save that which was lost. So 100 percent accurate. But let me draw an analogy, if I can. About a month and a half ago, my serpentine belt and my car broke down. And it's a really funny thing when a serpentine belt breaks. Um at least in my car, it made this noise that sounded like I ran over a branch and I thought I ran over a branch until I got to the red light and then my battery light was on and I said, that's interesting, but this is a thousand dollar car and I don't care. And I continued to drive for another two or three miles and then my engine was completely overheated. And so I pull off and and start going through, pull the hood up and pretend like I know what I'm doing and and I'm like, well, it clearly looks like the defibrillator or whatever. <laughs> so, so I pull the hood up and, and try to kind of diagnose what's going on. And after calling Marty Heist, mechanic extraordinaire, if you know him, and then kind of limping my car along to AutoZone, I find out that the serpentine belt is broken. But the serpentine belt doesn't just do one thing. 
it's a serpentine belt because it winds through a lot of different things. And so uh, it overheated because I think my water pump stopped working, so my engine stopped cooling off. And then the battery light came on because I think it's the alternator that charges your battery. Am I right, Josh? Okay, so it also controls the alternator as well. And so when the serpentine belt went, it wasn't just one thing that went with it, but it was a whole bunch of stuff. You could call it a multiplicity of things if you want to use an SAT word. And so if you were to sit in, in mechanic school and they were to give you a multiple choice question, what does the serpentine belt do? Uh, if you picked water pump, you would be right, but you wouldn't be 100% right because there's more than one thing that it does. Yes, the water pump and more. But in the same way, uh, Jesus's life, his death and his resurrection don't just accomplish one thing. It's not just get out of hell free. That's it. Why did Jesus die? So we don't go to hell. OK, cool. Let's dust our hands off of this and go hang out. But but it's always a yes and more. It's a he, he died so that we wouldn't stand under the judgment of God. Yes. And more. He died so that we could address God as father and not in terror. Yes. And more. Yes. And more. Always more. It's impossible to exhaust the fullness of what Jesus accomplished. But very often we reduce it to the get out of hell free card in our monopoly game of life. Because Jesus accomplished more than this, very often uh, that's really our only talking point when we address Jesus. But it, it might shock you to know that about 75% of Jesus' teaching, as it's contained in the Gospels, is not so much about you not going to hell, but he's talking about something called the kingdom of God. And so John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as Mark says. And he says that the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And he comes out of the wilderness saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're told that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 or so days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. He stands before Pontius Pilate. He says, are you a king? And Jesus says, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. Over and over and over again, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God because the cross accomplished salvation and, the, and that we were no longer under the condemnation of God, but it delivered us out of a kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light. And here's what happens for you and I, especially the longer that we have lived in the world apart from Jesus, is we're so used to being citizens of one kingdom that we don't know what it looks like to live in the other kingdom. And so Jesus spends much of his ministry saying, all right, at the end of this, I'm going to get you out of one kingdom, but I got to teach you after that how to live in this new one. And so John Stott has a very interesting and a helpful perspective on the Sermon on the Mount. Because when we address kingdoms and we talk about kingdoms, we don't call our country the kingdom of America. It'd be a little weird if we did. Uh, but in essence, that's what it is. It's a nation in the biblical sense. The, the United States is a kingdom. And, and this kingdom has foundational documents. We have this thing called the Constitution. Some people love it. Some people don't read it right. Some people hate it. Some people don't pay attention to it. But time and time again, we continue to go back to the Constitution and say, based on the fact that we are citizens of this kingdom, we go to the Constitution to determine how we will live as citizens of this kingdom. And so we continue to go back to the Constitution and interpret and reinterpret and reapply to the new circumstances that face us. Preceding the Constitution, you have the Declaration of Independence and I think the Articles of Confederation, but I didn't do very well in American government. So you have the Declaration of Independence, which is a statement of personhood. We confess this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and endowed with their creator by certain rights, Some, something like that. It's a statement of personhood. And then we have a constitution. John Stott would say this, that the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom of God. 
And the people of God, much like the United States Constitution, are to go back to this sermon again and again and again and say, what does it mean to live as citizens, not of the kingdoms of man, but of the kingdom of God? But much like our Constitution is preceded by the Declaration of Independence, where we talk about what it means to be a person in this, the Sermon on the Mount is preceded by a statement of personhood. We would call this the Beatitudes. Jesus begins these Beatitudes in a a format you might be familiar with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. And on and on and on he goes. And we hear that and we have this tendency to think that Jesus is addressing different groups of people. If you're poor in spirit or if you happen to be one of these meek folks who doesn't like to speak in public or if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you're just really zealous for being a nice guy or if if you're any one of these things, you're, you're going to find a place in this kingdom. But but that's a misunderstanding of the Beatitudes because they're not meant to address eight or ten different people. The Beatitudes are meant to be embodied in one person. So when you read the Beatitudes... We don't read this as, let me find a meek person and a poor in spirit person. But instead, the, the, the statement of the kingdom, the constitution of the kingdom starts by saying, this is the kind of person that is a citizen of this kingdom. It's one who is both poor in spirit, who, is, uh, who mourns, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It's somebody who's merciful and on and on and on he goes. So the Beatitudes are an incredibly penetrating look at what it looks like to be a child of God because it's not meant to be a bunch of different people you and I if we call ourselves Christians when we come to the Beatitudes are to test ourselves against each one of them and say am I meek do I hunger and thirst for righteousness am I somebody who mourns am I someone who's poor in spirit because Jesus doesn't just want you to be one of them he wants you to be all of them and so we spend the next eight weeks or so looking at ourselves As citizens of Jesus' kingdom, seeing if we are being the citizens we ought to be. And after that, we step into the Constitution. And Jesus says, now, as this kind of a citizen in my kingdom, here's how you interact with each other. Here's how you deal with conflict. Here's how you pray together. Here's how you serve with one another. Here's how you serve the community around each other. And so we come to the Beatitudes tonight. And my prayer is that as we come to the first two of them, uh, you'll see that they are connected in many ways. And they're the gateway to everything else in this sermon. And so it's important that we track with them well. Would you pray with me and we'll go to the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as we come to this sermon week after week, you would shape us, you would challenge us, and you would transform us so that we might look more and more like your son. God, we pray for wisdom and grace that we might divide your word rightly. God, we pray for humility as we come to these Beatitudes, that we would look in our own lives and see where we've fallen short here. God, we want to be the kind of people who are good citizens of your kingdom. Not just good citizens, but people who interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ well. So God, we pray for wisdom. God, we pray for humility. God, I pray for direction. I pray that you would speak through me through your word, that you would move aside anything that would inhibit your people from hearing of your goodness tonight. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, open with me to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be in verses 3 and 4. 
Uh, let me, as you're turning there, read to you where we were last week and bring you up to speed. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, there's some debate if you're a nerd like me and just read books on the Sermon on the Mount because you think that's cool. That's like your idea of a fun evening. Uh, there, there's a little bit of debate on how many Beatitudes there are because, because we don't really know how to mark them. Jesus doesn't say, Beatitude 1, write this down. Blessed, he, he doesn't mark it. And so people say, well, well is, it, is it marked by blessing? When Jesus says, blessed are, is that a beatitude? And then the next, blessed are, are they related? I, I'm going to say this. The first two, I think, are really keenly tied together. The first two beatitudes are, are distinctly related to one another. And I would argue that they're the gateway to the rest of this entire sermon. If you miss the first two beatitudes, everything else becomes impossible. So the first of them is this, and the second one I think will naturally flow out of it. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the history of the church, this has been interpreted in a million different ways. Uh, There's a group of people called the Desert Fathers. That that sounds really cool and maybe sounds like a metal band or something. but, But the Desert Fathers were a group of believers in the early half of the church. They were monks, and they felt like they needed to remove themselves from the world and practice a life of extreme poverty in order to get closer to God. And and this was one of the texts that they went to. And they said, Jesus wants us to be poor in spirit. That must mean that we should be impoverished materialistically as well. And so this has been used uh, as like a monastic thing of, if I really want to know Jesus, I need to literally sell everything that I have and I need to live uh, as a homeless person off off of the donations of other people. And it's been used to kind of reinforce this monastic life. Now, I'm not going to say that being a monk is a bad thing. I think it's kind of cool. You get the bald spot on your head. You get the chant, and it's cool. Um, I don't think that's what this text is teaching necessarily, though, because Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the financially impoverished. Uh, If that's what he meant, that's what he would have said. Uh, But instead, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so the inclination or the implication is that we're not dealing with somebody who is physically impoverished and that they are lacking sustenance. For their daily needs, but rather there is a, a sense of spiritual discouragement about them, which is a strange thing. Many people would say you can translate blessed here as happy as well. So to say happy are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually discouraged for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a weird thing to come out of the mouth of Jesus. But Jesus is working with the Old Testament. And so we might look at what it means to be poor in spirit in the Old Testament because that's what he's commenting on. If you turn to Psalms 42, you find an interesting passage. Uh, Psalms 42, verse 1 through, let's say, 5. The author says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude of keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And he continues to go on. I think that what you might be seeing in Psalms 42 is a picture of a spiritual depression. 
It's somebody who is beginning to feel the gravity of the divide between he and God. He says that he pants for God like the deer pants for water. There's a longing for God that can't be quenched. There's a distance. There's a divide. I would call that a spiritual depression or perhaps even being poor in spirit. John Stott comments on the poor in the Old Testament. He says this, the poor in the Old Testament is one who is both afflicted and unable to save himself. He therefore looks to God for salvation while recognizing that he has no claim upon him. So the picture of being poor in spirit, the one that Jesus is working with, I think we can define it in this way. It is somebody who looks to Scripture's diagnosis of the human condition and takes it seriously. Because if we were to look at Scripture's diagnosis of the human condition, it's bleak. There's not a lot positive said about the state of man as it is, biblically speaking. Uh, but, there, but there's an element of discouragement there. And, and I would say this. It's not just the Bible that has a pretty low view of the human condition. I read recently an article where a prominent biologist, I don't remember his name, so I guess you'll have to take my word for it. Uh, he, he was actually proposing that human beings were aliens from another planet. And this is going somewhere, I promise you. Uh, that human beings were aliens from another planet. And we were put here because we're so violent and so destructive and so corrupt that... that the other aliens put us on this planet as a prison because we're so awful. Uh, and this is somebody who is very clearly not coming from a Christian worldview, but he looks at the human condition and he goes, we're really messed up. We got some problem. We must be on a prison planet. We're that bad that the, the other aliens and guardians of the galaxy decided we suck and, and put us on Earth. So, so my, my point being this, that the Bible is not the only person to diagnose the human condition as bleak, but the Bible is incredibly piercing in its understanding of human beings, that we are corrupt, that we are wicked, that the psalmist in the 42nd Psalm is beginning to feel this, that there's a distance from God, there's a disconnect that can't be fixed. And that, I think, is what it means to be poor in spirits. It's to recognize the depths of your wickedness. Now, that sounds really negative, especially in our modern world. And it is a little bit negative. And many people would hear that and say, man, you're just kind of cutting down self-esteem. And, and we've we got to build people up and, and note the positives. And I recognize that. But the picture that the Bible presents of the human condition is kind of like a drowning man. And to, to ask a drowning man to talk about the positives of his condition is a little silly. Uh, and for the drowning man to demand that the lifeguard give him some positives is also a little silly. The picture we have here is the drowning man drowning, as, the, as his name implies. The lifeguard saying, you're drowning. And the man saying, stop oppressing me. Tell me something nice about where I'm at. The lifeguard's, you're going to die. Stop. That's mean. Tell me. No, no. You have a problem. You have a very serious problem. And until you recognize the state of the problem that you are drowning and you call it for what it is, you'll never be poor in spirit. This is the reason that this is the gateway to all of the other Beatitudes because the spiritually arrogant won't be able to practice any of the other ones until they recognize how spiritually broken they are. Martin Luther, one of the last things he ever wrote, said this, We are beggars. This much is true. Martin Luther was the guy who woke up in the morning and said, I can't start my day until I spent four hours in prayer. He's doing all right 
by modern standards. And he still recognized we are so spiritually impoverished that it produces a sorrow and it makes us poor in spirit. Now, the natural outflowing of this to recognize human brokenness and our need for salvation, I think, is mourning. Is it not? To recognize the fact that we are drowning, perhaps a little bit slower than the actual drowning man, I think would produce a mourning in us. A friend of mine named Alan uh, he sings for a band called Debtor. And the first record that they put out... Uh, was born out of a, a, an experience of just incredible spiritual darkness in his life, uh, where he was just recognizing his own sinfulness and, and coming to terms with who Jesus was and how far he had missed the mark. And in his mourning, he penned these lyrics, and they're a, a little harsh, but I think it kind of gives us a perspective of what this might look like. He says this, We, all, we are all perishing, some quickly falling, some slowly rotting, but none hoping. What a sorry state, what a wretched place we are in, constructing these artificial lines in our mind that blind us. We separate, we categorize, we deny, and we justify. Our defense mechanisms will protect us from the truth when we project lies on the sky to keep our eyes mesmerized. The soul will lie idly sleeping. All the while, the body count is rising. Justice is dead. Brothers are killing brothers. Husbands are beating wives. Mothers are forsaking children. Fathers are raping daughters. Drop the front and face the reality that we drink down evil like water. We are the bloodthirsty sons of murderers and the perverted daughters of pedophiles. There is none righteous. Bleak stuff. People get really jazzed up when they play this song. But my point being that out of this darkness of recognizing how far he was from the glory of God, you can't read those words and say this is not a man in mourning who started in being impoverished in his spirit and he is led to mourning, a sorrow that things are not as they ought to be. But there's a positive end to all of this because it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of heaven and it's those who mourn that are comforted here is the reality i don't know if you've picked up on this but we have jordan read scripture every week and the scripture pertains to what we're teaching on jordan read a passage for you from the book of hebrews and it says this since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear and death, who, those uh, through fear of death who were subject to lifelong slavery. The previous section of that says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. So we recognize our spiritual poverty, and it leads us to being poor in spirit. That should lead you to mourning, but there is comfort in this, that Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother, because even in your spiritual poverty, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. We'll sing a song later tonight. It comes from the Westminster Catechism. A catechism is a series of questions and answers that's used to teach the faith, especially to children. The question is, what is my one comfort both in life and in death? 
And the answer in the catechism is that I am not my own, but belong body, soul, and spirit to the Lord Jesus. So when we recognize our poverty, it leads to mourning. But there is comfort because we do not mourn as those without hope. But we have hope in the Lord Jesus. That in the midst of our brokenness, when we were incapable of delivering ourselves, he reached out his hand. And he pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. There's a reason this is the gateway to the rest of the Beatitudes. Because this is the gospel in two short sentences. That you are broken beyond your wildest imagination. And you are loved more than you could ever possibly hoped. That our one comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own. And that our mourning is comforted by the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. If you don't know the Lord, and I don't presume to know if you do or if you don't, um, I pray that you would. I'd love to talk with you about that. Uh, if you are in a position of spiritual arrogance and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not really seeing this whole how bad I actually am. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones ha- has a really interesting take on this as he comments on it. He says, if you're struggling with figuring out how, how to recognize kind of your depravity, try this. Look at him, referring to Jesus, and keep looking at him. Look to the saints. Look at men who have been used and filled most by the Spirit. But above all, look again at Him. And then you will have nothing to do with yourself. It will be done. You cannot truly look at Him without feeling your absolute poverty and emptiness. Uh, this is something I find really interesting about the Gospels. Is the disciples start as these uneducated fishermen. And they end as still uneducated people who have changed the entire face of the world. But, but Jesus... He he challenges them a lot, but more often than not, it's just them being in the presence of Jesus where they realize how bad they actually are. They see Jesus' faith and they they go to him and they say, Lord, increase our faith. We thought we were doing pretty good because we're casting out demons. But then we see you and we realize how bad we're doing. And then they come to him later on in this passage, actually, and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. We thought we knew how to pray. But being in your presence is enough to show me how far I actually have to go. And so if you're struggling with the first part of this, to become poor in spirit, I would challenge you, read the Gospel of John. Read it once a week, every week, and compare your life to that of Jesus's. And at each juncture, see how you might respond and see how the Son of God responds. Or try this, at the end of the day, list out all of the times that you've transgressed the commands in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not saying this to beat you down and make you sad, but sometimes we would do well to recognize how sinful we actually are because there's no comfort until you realize the problem. But once you've realized the problem and you've seen the comfort, then the rest of these beatitudes become a joy because it's step after step in becoming more like Christ Jesus, who's our one comfort in life and death. Let's pray and we'll continue in worship. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time together in your word. God, we pray that you would open our hearts to it, that you would make us receptive to these truths. Father, I pray that you would now lead us by your spirit and worship. Uh, Lord, that you would move in us. God, that you would sanctify us, that we would be a people who live out the Sermon on the Mount. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we would look more and more like you. 
you who are one comfort both in life and in death. Because for all of the mourning that comes with our shortcomings, you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And that you would take on the form of a man and die as a man and be raised so that you might give us a source of hope and joy and comfort. So God, lead us now to respond to these truths by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.